had a couple write in and they can't agree to disagree. I bet you have never done that. I'm sure that every time you have thought about something, brought up something in your relationship, whether it's marriage or family or or any other relational context, you always agree and everybody wants to go along with what you want, right? Well, probably not. And sometimes you find yourself in situations where you just can't come to the solution or the conclusion that you want. And sometimes you just have to settle on this cliche. We'll just have to agree to disagree. And so I want to write about that and or I want to talk about that in this podcast. And so I titled the article, How to Agree to Disagree and Still Enjoy Each Other. I had a couple write in and they have a problem in their marriage and I'll share that scenario with you in just a moment. And they wanted to know, how do we work through this? How do we do conflict resolution? How do we problem solve? This is a big deal. Because any time that you put two sinners in a room for an extended period, well, there will always be conflict to varying degrees and you need to learn how to work through it. And sometimes you can't get what you want and you do land on this notion of agreeing to disagree. And so the podcast, the article on the website, how to agree to disagree and still enjoy each other. You don't want to just agree to disagree, but you want to do that if you have to, and you want to enjoy each other. That is the aftermath. Thank you so much for joining me for Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas, and you can find this article at rickthomas.net. If you would love to read it, I would love for you to do that too, and you can send it to a friend. Just copy the URL, send it in a text or an email, and say, hey, you need to read this. This will benefit you. Perhaps some of you who lead Bible studies or small groups or do counseling. Sarah wrote in today. She read one of my articles recently and said it was one of the better articles that she had read on that subject, and she wants to share it with her team. She's part of a counseling ministry, and I was greatly encouraged that she wanted to do that, and I want you to do that too. Share our articles and our podcasts with 1,000 of your closest friends, and that will make me extremely happy. If you don't know how to do that, please come and ask, and we'll show you how to share. I had someone write in recently, and they asked if they could take our article and put it on their blog. Well, you can't do that, not in its entirety, but if you want to use a, a couple of hundred words to put on your blog, you can do that as long as you get our permission and you link it back to us. We'll talk you through that. Just let us know. But the big idea here is I want you to share our resources with your friends. An elder in a local church said recently that he wanted to take our 10-minute life change videos and show them uh, to their people in a Bible study uh, small group context. And of course, I applaud that idea too. Perhaps you have a way that you want to use our resources and well, just ask, jump on our forums and say, hey, Rick, can we, can we do this? What do you think about this? And, and more than likely, the answer is yes, but let's talk about it because our goal uh, is to reach the world with these practical resources about the gospel, and you can help us do that. If you want to talk about this article, agreeing to disagree and still enjoying each other, jump on our forums. We have free forums at that is that are accessible to anybody in the world as long as you can get on the internet and then for those of you who support us may your kind increase 
but we have a private forum for you, and I want you to go there, and you can talk directly to me. I don't interact with everybody that comes to us because it's just not possible. We have multiplied thousands that come to us every day. As I told someone recently, Jesus didn't even feed 5,000, not counting the women and children. He delegated that responsibility because he was a finite man. He was 100% man, and he couldn't feed 5,000 people. And and the children, but he could make the bread and, and the fishes. And so I create content. I create resources. I have a leadership training program or a mastermind program. And I spend most of my time there. And so I can't interact with everybody that comes to us. But we can serve you. We do have the resources. Uh, we have the, the articles, the podcasts, the videos. And you can help us by using them and using them to teach others. And that would be fantastic. Let me jump into this article I want to talk about this idea of, you know, all conflict that we have doesn't always end in agreement. There are times when the best that you can do is agree to disagree. Now, as you think about this popular cliche, it is vital that you don't start with the subject at hand, that you don't start with this external thing in your life, in your marriage that you're trying to resolve you must go underground. You must go under the surface of that problem. You want to go to the root. You want to address the heart motivations first before you address the thing that is dividing you. And so in this podcast, I'm going to show you how to assess yourself biblically. Let me share with you what this couple is struggling with, and then we will, we will get into the particulars of how to assess this, analyze it, and bring hopefully a good gospel solution to what is happening in this marriage. But they write in and they say, how does a married couple balance money issues? That's what we're talking about. And that's one of the more common problems that couples experience in their marriages is this idea of money. It is just a fact of life. We need money to live and sometimes there's not enough to go around and sometimes we're not good stewards of our money and so it can be a problem for couples. And so this couple is saying that one partner is generally the money saver. They're the frugal one that, that rakes in the money and tries to save it and the other one... <laughs> Is, is spreading it out and spending it. They're the money spender. And so the question is, how does the saving individual overcome bitterness with the spender's needs, the need to go and, and buy stuff, I suppose? The saver is experienced guilt and shame with all the spending that the other spouse is doing. And so the question is, where is the balance and so I will address this external behavioral problem in this marriage. But before I do that, I want to start at the beginning. It is important that you do that, uh, do this because when you look at a couple, what you're going to see is two different people, unique individuals. Uh, they're not the same people, and that is exactly the way it was in the beginning. You know that Adam and Eve were different and unique, and the Lord said it was good. And that's why it's imperative for you to know that being different is perfect. And what you want to do is you want to celebrate differences. And as you are celebrating them, you want to leverage them. 
in your marriage rather than permitting your personalities and other peculiarities to be a source of irritation that divides. If your differences are dividing you, then you don't understand how and why God made you unique. And you need to learn that your uniqueness is not just perfect, but it is something that you should be celebrating and using for God's glory and for your benefit. This perspective is at the heart of what it means to be a complementarian. A complementarian worldview means the husband and the wife represent two different people who come together to form a one flesh union with each person bringing unique gifts and strengths to the marriage. Between the two of them, they live in a complementing lifestyle and process that matures throughout their marriage. Now, the wise and humble couple realizes that this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity that is a gift from God, and it motivates them to appropriate His grace into their lives. And as they appropriate God's grace into their lives to help make the most out of their uniqueness, they experience the Lord doing transformative things in their marriage that neither one of them could do alone. Now that's how it was in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And that's how it should be in your marriage, celebrating uniqueness, bringing them, them together, complementing each other for the greater good. But let's turn the page. When you turn the page, you land in Genesis chapter 3 and it starts sounding like bad news. What God intended for our good and His glory was interrupted by sinful divisions and evil agendas. The sinning that I'm talking about is not so much the sinfulness that we see in our world as the sin that we see in ourselves. You know, when we start talking about sin, you talk about sin in the average small group of Christians and like the first thing that they're going to talk about, the first thing that they're going to think is about the evil that is out there somewhere in our society. That's not the first place you look when you start talking about evil. The humble soldier of Christ will always begin by addressing his or her propensity to crave the wrong things. That's where you must always look when you start thinking about evil. I'm not minimizing or marginalizing or saying that the sin out there is not a thing. It is a thing, but that's not where you began. No one but Christ can escape the curse and the effects of Adam's fall. Thus, people will always have to deal with the problem with the evil that look, lurks in their hearts. My heart, your heart, hoping to take them captive, take those evil thoughts captive. There is no place more fertile and receptive to our sin problem than, than in a marriage. Sin beckons all of us all of the time. But when two people choose to get married, what they do is they exacerbate their unique sin problems. When Lucia and I were dating, it was nearly conflict-free. I could walk away from her on a nightly basis because we were dating, praise God. And guess what? She was free from me for another evening, praise God. But then we decided to tie the knot. 
when you tie the knot, you can no longer ignore the real truth about ourselves, yourself, myself. It was only by the grace of God that we were able to see our differences as God's kindness to us and something we could celebrate and enjoy, but it did not come easy and it did not come without many battles. Now, the problem that I have described, it's not unique to you. All couples must engage their sinful personal loyalties to themselves as they live to serve each other. It's the unwise couple. They will choose to ignore the challenge that I'm laying before you, only to realize years later the mistake that they made as they resisted humility while entertaining pride. By the time they come to address the issues in their marriage, the tentacles of sin will have so twisted and gnarled the union that it will seem hopeless to press on. But the gospel, it is the gospel that debunks the notion that the marriage is kaput. The gospel informs us that there is no problem so significant that it cannot fix. Think about the gospel is God chose to execute his one and only son to restore us to himself. The implication is clear. There is no problem more significant than our need for reconciliation to the Lord. But as you might surmise, the gospel is not just for marriages in trouble. The gospel has many things to say about any relationship. The wise person will be prudent and diligent about their problems and will consistently seek how to bring the gospel to bear on the never-ending maintenance needs in their relationships, in this case, in their marriage. Now, with these things in mind, and before I move on, I want to ask you a few questions, things that I want you to ponder and practicalize about what you have just heard here are four questions for you. Number one, do you agree that you made a covenant to God and you will not leave your marriage? You don't want to drop the divorce card on the table. Don't put it on the table. Don't put it in your mind. Do you agree that you made a covenant to God and you will not leave your marriage? Number two, because God fixed your most significant problem in life, now, I, I am assuming here that you are a Christian. If you aren't a Christian, then you have a much bigger problem than whatever's going on in your marriage, and you need to fix your relationship with God Almighty. But let's assume that you are a believer, and because God has now satisfied, He has now resolved your most significant in life, uh, problem in life, do you believe He can fix any other issue you have? Question number three, will you ask God to give you the grace to work through your current marriage problem? And number four, do you feel that there is hope in God and that he can help you and your spouse? And so as you're working on this external problem, in this scenario here, in this podcast, we're talking about money problems with a couple. But before you do that, you want to make sure that you situate 
your hope in the gospel. And so I want you to wrestle through these questions. You can go to this this article on our website, How to Agree to Disagree and Still Enjoy Each Other. For those of you who are discipling others, I want you to work through their external problem, whatever it may be. It might not be about money, but whatever it may be. And I want you to begin talking to them about this complementarian worldview and how their differences are God's design for them to work together and bring their uniqueness to their relationship. And then I want you to help them to situate their hope in the transformative gospel. There is hope. And then the next thing is I want you to help them to, I want you to help them to see themselves clearly. This is how Paul saw himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you believe you are the foremost sinner? In the King James Bible it says the chief sinner that God has ever saved. I'm serious. Do you let me, let me frame it this way. If you were the writer of 1 Timothy, the verse that I just read, if you were writing that verse, that book, instead of Paul writing it, would you write the sacred text the way he wrote it, saying that he is the foremost sinner? Or in this case, you would be saying that you are the foremost sinner. How you answer these questions that I've just asked you will have a direct impact on how you relate to your spouse. These questions are foundational, gospel-centered questions that will shape how you view and interact in all your relationships. I'm not asking if you have committed the worst sins in the world because more than likely you have not. I'm not asking you if, you, if you've committed the most sins, if we could even tabulate such a thing. I'm not suggesting that your sinfulness is consequentially more horrific than another person. I'm sure you can think of other people who have done things that have far greater consequences than any of the sinning that you have done. I'm appealing to you to not look first at what others have committed, but gaze at the cross, and in light of what you see on that cross, how do you perceive yourself? Here's the key idea. If you do not believe you are the foremost sinner that you know, if you don't believe the way Paul believed, you'll have relational difficulties that will be difficult to resolve. If you embrace Paul's perspective as your own, you're not only in good company with him, but you are in the best possible place to work through any relational conflict. I want to share with you a, a list of, of a few benefits of being the biggest sinner in the room, which is how I have historically phrased it. Paul would say foremost sinner or chief sinner. I would say the biggest sinner in the room. Here are a few benefits. Have you ever thought about the benefits of being the biggest sinner in the room? Here are a few. The foremost sinner sees each day as a gift from God. The foremost sinner is grateful. The foremost sinner encourages others 
If you know your worst problem in life has been resolved at the cross and you are the chief of sinners, you're going to be an encourager. The foremost sinner is not critical. The foremost sinner does not uncharitably judge others. The foremost sinner does not gossip. He, he is more aware of his sin than the sins of others. He walks in humility. He experiences grace, is not demanding, realizes he has no rights, is not argumentative, is more suspicious of himself than others, finds it easy to think the best of others, does not envy the blessings that others receive the foremost sinner esteems others more than himself he's not surprised when he sins he's not surprised when others sin the foremost sinner assumes that he does not understand entirely whatever it is he's trying to understand and the foremost sinner appreciates God those are benefits from the lowly position of realizing that you are as Paul said the foremost sinner and being the foremost sinner is not the total package as it pertains to Paul's theology. It is only one aspect of his theology, but sadly, it's an oft-neglected part of his theological corpus. Everyone struggles with how Paul saw himself in light of the cross, especially when they turn the tables and apply his thoughts to themselves. The typical reaction is something along the lines of, well, 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 yes, but I don't want to camp there as though I am asking you to camp there. I'm not. I'm just asking you to embrace a more comprehensive view of the gospel, which includes a robust understanding of the doctrine of sin as it applies to you. This case study about financial conflict must begin by applying God's word to the doctrine of sin as I have outlined here. If this couple does not, they will have a difficult time working through their marriage money problems. Unfortunately, when most people work through their issues, they look for quick solutions to the behaviors, external problems while not realizing that their root issues stem from their deceptive hearts. It is far easier to wallpaper a termite-infested home than tear it down and rebuild it. And without understanding your real motives, you may try to resolve your financial issues and it won't work. You will just be wallpapering your marriage, not realizing that the walls of your hearts are termite infested. And that's why it's imperative that you situate your hope in the gospel and that you understand who the biggest sinner in the room is. And now that you have situated your hope in the transformative gospel... Let's explore your heart agendas. Then we'll move on to the behavioral problem with money. And so let me ask you a few questions about this idea of being the foremost sinner. And then we'll talk about the problem, the question that was actually asked about financial problems. Question number one, when you argue, do you initially think you are more right than the other person? Question number two, are you more suspicious of yourself or others when there is conflict are you more suspicious of yourself or are you more suspicious of others when there is conflict number three illustrate a time when you thought you were more right but found out later that you were not right number four in what specific way has the gospel changed how you approach and think about others and then finally number five how does the gospel govern your heart in conflict and so with the gospel fixed as your hope, 
and your heart humbled by the realization that you're the foremost sinner. Now, let's look at the problem at hand. How would you solve this problem? The spender husband wants to buy a horse. <laughs> the saver wife is frustrated and angry about what he wants to do. Not so long ago, the husband purchased a timeshare and the wife was against it. And the wife is still mad with her husband about the timeshare and now he wants to buy a horse. There are two distinct things wrong with the original scenario that I, I shared with you. Let me read to you what, I, what they wrote, what they asked. Here's the original scenario. How does a married couple balance money issues? For example, one partner is generally the money saver, while the other is the money spender. How does the saver overcome bitterness with the spender's needs? Now, that's a key question there. There's a lot of bad theology wrapped up in that question, and I want to address that. The question is, how does the saver overcome bitterness with the spender's needs? The saver is experiencing guilt and shame with all the spending. What is the balance? There are two distinct things wrong with this scenario. Number one, the spender rarely has needs. This spender doesn't have a need. Let me ask it this way. Do you need to buy a horse? No, there's a difference between needing to buy a horse and a desire to buy a horse. Those are two different things. And so the way this question was framed, he's talking about, she's talking about her husband's need. And then the second thing, the saver, she, the frugal person, is experiencing guilt. People who save money should not experience guilt for saving money. Ironically, in this scenario, the exact opposite should be true. The husband should be experiencing guilt for spending and what the wife needs, she needs to be free from the guilt that she feels because of what she wants to do. The issue here is that the husband wants to buy a big ticket discretionary item that there is no justifying need for him or for them to purchase. It would be like me spending several thousand dollars on a motorcycle while my wife was dead set against it. In such a case, it would be wrong for me to spend money on the bike. A motorcycle or a horse does not qualify as a need. Now, this is not just a, an exercise in semantics. This is a, a, a port, an important point, and the husband and the wife need to make sure that they understand what they are talking about, and we are not talking about a need they may need to spend thousands of dollars for surgery, life-threatening surgery, but they don't need to spend a couple thousand dollars or I'm not, whatever a horse costs. It would be exceptional to need those things, whether it's a motorcycle or a horse. It is sinful this, for this man to frame his cravings for the things as needs while his wife is against him doing so. I'm speaking about common sense here as well as biblical maturity. In this case study, the husband is foolish, quite honestly. He's just, that's just foolish. He doesn't understand 1 Peter 3, 7. You know this verse well. 
Peter said, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is very clear here that to be out of sync with your wife is to be out of sync with God. This person is exalting his desires over the clear commands of Scripture to take care of his wife. I do wonder if the husband realizes the real needs in his life. He has two of them. These are definitely needs. Number one, work on your relationship with God. That's a need. A horse is a desire. Number two, here's a need. Restore his relationship with his wife. A motorcycle or a horse should never come between a husband and a wife. Let's just be honest here. That would be exceptional. The bike and the horse are secondary matters. Now here's the irony. The Lord is using those things to identify a more significant problem in their marriage. Do you see the mercy of God in this problem? The Lord is bringing a horse into their marriage to draw attention to a weak foundation that is in their marriage. The benefit of the motorcycle or the benefit of the horse is that it's revealing the exact condition of the marriage. How kind of God. Hopefully they can turn the horse around and, and, and realize that, that this is not something to fight over, but this is an a instrument of grace in God's hands. That he's using this horse in their marriage to help them focus on the main thing that they should be focusing on. Perhaps there will be a day where the husband can have both of, both of these things, since it would not be sinful to have one, a horse, a motorcycle, was my illustration. But today is not that day. He needs to understand that there are more in-depth problems in his marriage. And if he continues to press for his agenda, he may end up with a horse and no wife. The title of this podcast is How to Agree to Disagree and Still Enjoy Each Other. Let me finish by asking a, a few questions. Number one, are you living in the good of the hope of the gospel today? That's a, that's a critical, that's a vital question that the gospel must situate you. Number two, do you see your spouse as a bigger sinner than you? Number three, what do the external issues in your marriage, what does the horse in your marriage reveal about the condition of your relationship? I have a couple more questions here, and you can read those if you wish. Thank you for listening to this podcast, How to Agree to Disagree and Still Enjoy Each Other. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.